Good morning again. I hope you have a Bible near you. Please grab that, get it into your lap. We're gonna, we're gonna be all over the scriptures this morning. We're gonna deal with something that's actually referred to or mentioned 677 times, plus or minus, in the Bible. And so I wanna take you to several different places, and I'd, I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bibles with me. Let your fingers do the walking this morning. We're gonna skip over several plagues this morning. We're in the midst of the plagues of Egypt. You might say, I know we're in the midst of the plagues. Well, no, we haven't gotten to pestilence yet in, in our teaching. But we're in the midst of studying the plagues. We've looked at blood. We've looked at frogs a week ago. We, we considered the plague of the frogs. We're gonna now skip over the plague of gnats and flies and pestilence and boils to come to the seventh plague on Egypt. Deal with that this morning, and then Wednesday night, we'll go back and we'll pick up those other plagues and walk those through and consider those together. Please don't be discouraged by the plagues because in these, there is amazing, relevant teaching for you and me right here, right now, today. So Exodus chapter nine, if you have your Bible now, open it up to Exodus chapter nine, verse 12. Exodus nine, verse 12 which begins, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. That's the first time God hardens Pharaoh's heart. His heart had been hardened by choice and by, by action several times already. This is now the first time that God hardened Pharaoh's heart Verse 12, then verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, for if by now, I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Father, as we consider these things, we just pray for your spirit to reach into our hearts, to teach us, Lord, yes, and to impact our thought life. And truly, Father, we ask that your spirit would bring revelation in understanding to us. But as we so often come before you and ask, would you please, Lord, take faith and make it action? Would you take word and turn it into deed? We pray that the seeds of, of truth that you would plant in us this morning would become fruit for you, Lord, for the kingdom, to the glory and the honor of your name. Holy Spirit of the living God, we humbly come asking to be taught and fed and sanctified in you, in Jesus' name, amen. You ever wonder where the symbol of the heart came from? You know the symbol I'm talking about? I mean, we do this with our hands every now and then. My daughters like to go, oh, dad, you know, you didn't give me what I wanted, and so <laughs> my heart's broken. The symbol of the heart this image actually existed long before it became an emoji on so many of our phones. We think the image of the Valentine heart shape actually draws back to the fourth century before Christ when Aristotle described the anatomy of the human heart as having three chambers with a small dent in the top middle. He described it that way for, for various reasons, and of course, we know the heart has four chambers to it, and it looks more like an eggplant than a valentine. But the valentine's heart began to really be laid into culture 1,600 years after Aristotle, graphically popularized in the time of the Renaissance. 
what artists did in the Renaissance and their artwork, even religiously and especially religiously, they came up with this little heart shape. They called it the sacred heart. Perhaps you've heard that. The sacred heart, a rendering and paintings of, of a Valentine's heart as you would think of it, surrounded by thorns, crowned with a cross on the top of it. And oftentimes in the paintings, this heart would show up right on the chest of Jesus or held in his hands. And the idea behind this sacred heart was to portray the love of God, to give focus to the compassion of our Lord. But you can draw back way before that, after Aristotle, but back 1,600 years to the first century uh, before the Renaissance, the first century A.D., in the Greco-Roman world, which recognized the human heart, maybe not the little valentine, but the actual human heart, the cardia in the Greek, as the seat of the human spirit. The center of the spirit was referred to as the heart in the first century, not the emotions, that's the guts. Anytime the Bible uses in the New Testament the word compassion, it's splachna, that's guts. It's talking about the seat of emotion and how you feel things in your gut. But the heart, the heart was recognized as the place of the spirit or emblematic of the spirit back in the first century. You can go centuries before that. In fact, you go all the way back to Moses himself who inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God used the Hebrew word for heart, which is labab, or the short version is leb. And this may be where we got the word lobe from the Hebrew leb, but leb refers to the heart. It's, it's the, actually the organ of the heart in the human body, but Moses used it, the Bible used it to portray the inner spiritual life, the heart of a person. We talk about Heart being the spirit and, and soul being the mind and then body, of course, being the flesh, the heart. We read in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The triune nature there, again, of spirit, soul, and body in every human being the heart. But the first time the heart is used in the Bible, the first mention of the word in the Hebrew, it's not a positive mention. It's Genesis chapter six, verse five, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That means that at that time, the entire spirit of a man, of a woman, was evil continually the nature of who they were. We're told in Genesis 6, verse six, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Let's get forward to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse seven. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And of course, Jeremiah 17, verse nine, a verse you've heard, if you've been here, you've heard it many times over the years at the bridge. It's just a reality. It's the reason why we so desperately need grace. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So as common as the heart symbol or emoji might be, biblically, it speaks of the inner person, that inner eternal identity, the spirit of a man or of a woman. Now, you may know all that. That may be familiar to you. But understand, I'm starting here because the condition of the heart ought to be the single greatest concern of our lives. The spirit, not the flesh and how I can build it up because you know what? Life is just gonna tear it down. Not the mind on how I can fill it up because the reality is it's just gonna build pride. It's the spirit. It's the heart of a man, the heart of a woman, who you really are. Your truest self, your eternal nature. 
This is so vitally important for us to comprehend, and yet it gets sidelined so easily. It's often deceived. It's easily demoted. It's forcefully dismissed by flesh and by soul. So first place I want you to go in your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter four in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter four, and try to keep up. I'm gonna be jumping around a bit as I said, but Ephesians chapter four in verse 17, the apostle Paul writes, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because, listen, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. Wow, he talks about this direction, this way that they walked, this practice, every kind of impurity and every kind of greediness. Don't walk that way. As a kid in the 70s, used to listen to Aerosmith, sing the song, walk this way. Don't walk that way. Don't walk that way. It's futile. It's dark, excluded, ignorant, callous, sensual, impure, greedy. And for all One reason, a hard heart. A hard heart produces all of this. And the reason why this is so vital, so critical to us here this morning is that faith cannot enter a heart that's hard. Faith is everything. I mean, faith is our salvation. By grace, you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Faith is required. Without faith, you cannot please God. But faith cannot enter and then be expressed from a heart that's hard. There's no entry point. And Jesus said in Luke 18, verse eight, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The implication of that statement by Jesus is no. He will not find faith on the earth. That faith will not be the standard of humanity when Jesus comes again, and that's a tragic reality, but keep this in mind as we now take a look at plague number seven, back in Exodus chapter nine, verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, the Lord said, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now, and this plague of hail begins a whole new round of plagues, In fact, starting right here with the seventh plague, it becomes more intense than any plague prior to it. Much more than the curious rat-a-tat-tat of hail that you might be familiar with or might think of. I think of several years ago, we were building our house and it was a Sunday morning and we walked up from the barn and it was dark clouds overhead and it suddenly began to hail. And it was the kind of hail we get in Washington, you know, those tiny little pebble-sized hail dropping down everywhere and, and just covering the ground. It was, it was pretty amazing. At first, we thought, is it snow? It wasn't. It just spread out everywhere. Tiny little granules of, of white frozen hail. And I remember because we went up into our house being built and it was just, it was completely framed at the time. So we were able to walk across the floors and I just remember seeing it piled up all over the inside of that framed house and, and piled up in, in little heaps in the corners and thinking at the time and even looking back going, that was cool. <laughs> that was really cool. I love when stuff, I love when weather happens. You know, real weather. I'm not talking about the misty Washington rain. I'm talking about real weather. Thunder and lightning and rain and hail, you know, snow coming down. I mean, the wild stuff. I love that. This hail was serious business. This was not playing around. This was not cute. In fact, Sarna says the third and final triad of plagues now begins. The escalation of terror and ruin sets the stage for the climactic catastrophe. This accounts for the extraordinary length of the warning given to Pharaoh at dawn. This is the longest warning of any of the plagues is before the plague of hail. And for the first time, listen to this, for the first time, the Egyptians and their livestock are given the opportunity to take shelter 
and some avail themselves of it. Look at verse 19. Now therefore the Lord said, send and bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. He's not talking to the Israelites, he's talking to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. It's severe, but no, don't miss the amazing grace and the compassion of God, even in his anger, as he cares for pagans and their animals. He loves enough to give warning. That's something our world fails to see and understand often with the Lord our God is he warns first. Why? Because he loves. That punishment without warning is not love, but punishment that follows warning is the deepest kind of love. I don't want this for you. So bring your livestock in, get your servants out of the field, get yourself into the house because the hail's coming down and if you're outside, you will die. This is gonna happen which is why since the very beginning all the way until now, the Lord has said, if you do not trust in me, you will die. You will not survive. You will not be saved. Trust in me and you will be saved. Verse 20, he continues, the one among the servants of the Lord, actually Moses now writing, the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, made his servants and his livestock flee into their houses. Note that. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So aside from the Jewish people now dwelling in Goshen and completely spared from this hail, the hail did not fall on Goshen. So they're completely spared from it. Aside from them, the only difference between those who were spared and those who were lost was this. The spared feared the word of the Lord. The lost did not set their heart to the word of the Lord. And I want you to note that verse 21 doesn't say, but he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord. It says literally, he who did not set his heart to the word of the Lord was lost. God puts his word out there and the difference between the saved and the lost is those who set their heart to his word, those who fear his word, those who trust his word, those who reject it are lost. It's a very simple truth, but we see it right here in this plague. And by the way, the word was simple. This was not learn your entire Bible, be able to quote it by memory and maybe I'll save you. This was get inside, that's it. Get inside the house. If you're outside, when the storm hits, you're gonna lose everything. Matthew chapter seven, verse 24. Turn there quickly if you'd like to, or you can just listen. This is incredibly important. It's also very familiar. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, and acts on them. Those four words ought to be underlined in every Bible. May be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew, slammed against that house, and it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Then Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. I wonder when Jesus gave that parable if he was thinking about the plague of hail because it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what God described. Get inside. By the way, there's a familiar word for hearing and acting. He who hears my word and acts on it. Not just hears. Lots of people hear the Bible. Lots of people hear the word. Lots of people hear it throughout the world. The question is whether we hear and act. And the acting is the issue. And there's a word for that, hearing and acting, and the word is faith. Once again, we come back to faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. But it's not faith if there's no action. Yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I believe it. Does it change you? Do you act on it? Is your behavior affected by what you've heard? 
Does it alter your thinking and behavior? See, hearing with action, faith will save you from the storm. Hearing with inaction will leave you exposed and ultimately desolate. Think about it this way. You can connect the seventh plague of Egypt with the seventh bold judgment in Revelation 16, verse 21. Guess what it is? Huge hailstones. About a hundred pounds each came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. The plague of hail on Egypt is a precursor to the greater plague that's gonna come at the end of the tribulation with the final bold judgment as literally hundred pound hailstones will be falling from the ground. We're talking meteorites. We're talking a massive display of power and destruction upon the earth. By the way, biblical punishment for blasphemy was stoning, to blaspheme God, which is what Pharaoh continues to do as he rejects God, as he says yes and then says no, as he hardens his heart. He's blaspheming the authority, the righteousness, the truth of God. And the punishment for that is stoning. But salvation is absolutely simple. Hear the word of God, act on it, and you'll be in the house. In fact, that's an easy way to think of it. Get in the house. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to get in the house. Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Be of the household of God, get inside. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said to Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So even when all hail breaks loose, (laughs) those of the household of God will be saved. That's where we're going. So get inside by hearing and acting on his word, that is, faith. Verse 22, now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail on all the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. This was a wild and ferocious hailstorm ushered in by booming thunder and constant lightning flashes. This is a wild Amazing storm. And once again, those of you taking notes, you might check this out. The Egyptian false gods are challenged and they are undermined and taken down. The sky goddess of Egypt in that day was named Nut. I don't kid you, N-U-T, Nut. That nutty, crazy God. The sky goddess Nut couldn't control the storm. Osiris, Osiris was the Egyptian god of agriculture and the afterlife, interesting pairing. He couldn't save the crops from devastation, which says something about his handle on the afterlife. And then there's Set or Sutek. Set is the god of thunder and storm, and Set was silenced as Yahweh's thunder roared and lightning flashed and hail rained down from heaven. Three gods right up front are taken out. Nut, Osiris, and Set. In this incredible moment that God said, this is coming tomorrow. I don't know if it was clear blue skies when it was announced, 
But wow, when this hit, it was like nothing they had ever seen. This was a storm they had never experienced in all of Egypt's history. Lightning flashing just constantly. Now, I, I like a little lightning. It's cool, you know, that, that flash across the sky. I like some booming, rolling thunder off in the distance and it gets closer and you, you kind of feel that tension rise. And that, that can be fun unless you're caught out in it unless it's what's being described here, which is not just a few lightning flashes, some booming thunder, and then here comes the hail. It was all encompassing, all at the same time. Thunder, lightning, hail, constant coming down together. Now the fire here, there are a lot of different interpretations people have tried to give this. If you've seen the old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, you know that they showed fire actually lit up in the hail on the ground, and that's, that's unlikely. That's based on kind of a, a, a weird translation of what is happening here. Some have said this was like meteor shower coming down so that the hail actually, some of it was burning. Again, that, that may be a stretch. I think we're just talking about lightning flashing, but flashing constantly, igniting the sky, pelting the ground even as the hail came down and the thunder rolled. But check this out, thunder, thunder. I, I love Hebrew because the language is so descriptive. Even the sound of the words, we say thunder. How does that sound like thunder? You know, thunder. Is that what thunder sounds like to you? No, the word in the Hebrew is kol. If you're spelling it out, Q-O-L, kol. You get this kol. You can imagine, wow, that, that sounds like thunder to me. Kol. And that's what was happening. And I tell you this because Coal, thunder in the Hebrew, means loud noise, it means din, and it means voice. Voice. Verse 23, which again reads, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder, hail, and fire. That's the first time we see the word thunder in the Bible. First use of the word coal, Q-O-L, in the Bible. Thunder, coal. Now listen, this word is Hebrew code for the voice of God. The voice of God booming in the heavens. Turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. This might ring a bell for some of you Bible students, especially if you've gone through Revelation with us. Psalm 29, and I'm just gonna read you the whole psalm. You can start turning there, get there quick as you can. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now check it out, verse three. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders, but the word thunder there is not coal. It's a different word for thunder. The Lord is over many waters. But you know what? In verse three, the voice of the Lord, the word voice is coal. Coal, thunder, din, loud noise. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Verse four, the voice, again, coal of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That would be, again, lightning strikes. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. And we hear that word coal, voice, seven times in Psalm 29. This is called the Psalm of the Seven Voices, the Seven Thunders. And the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Wow, I love how the psalm ends. It's like coming to the very end of a ferocious thunderstorm. It's that quiet when the storm finally passes, when the voice has spoken and now there's peace. The voice of God will bring one of two things to you in your life. It will either bring terror or it will bring peace. 
and it all depends on faith. It depends on how you receive the word of the Lord in your heart. Do you receive his word by faith? Then it comes as peace. Even when it's booming thunder, it brings peace. But when it's booming thunder and you are rebellious or you're rejecting or hard-hearted against the Lord, it brings fear. It brings anxiety. It brings terror. Faith is the difference. The voice of the Lord, again, sounding seven times in Psalm 29. It reminds me of that day when Jesus had come into Jerusalem. Really the last time in pre-crucifixion resurrection life, the last week when he came in, the week of his crucifixion, and something happened. This is in John chapter 12. Something took place that week. Very interesting. A group of Greeks asked permission to see Jesus. Some Gentiles wanted to get together with Jesus. This obviously indicated to Jesus that the times of the Gentiles were about to begin. So perceptive, so in tune was the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 20 tells us these Greeks came and they went looking for Jesus. And he said in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? Because the Gentiles are coming. Times of the Gentiles. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Speaking of his own sacrificial death, he said, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so Jesus turns and says, Father, glorify your name. You know what happened next? A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world because the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. God thunders from the heavens. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The thunderous voice of God. It's even Hebraically referred to as the seven peals of thunder. Remember Psalm 29, the seven thunders, Psalm of the seven voices of God, the seven coal. But in Revelation chapter 10, verses three and four, we note of the seven peals of thunder. Twice it's referred to, and that's the voice of God. By the way, did I mention Psalm 29? The psalm of the seven voices, the seven thunders, the seven coals of God is always read on the first day of Shavuot, Pentecost. Jewish people come round to Psalm 29 and it is like an opening psalm read on what we Christians refer to in the Greek as Pentecost, but the Jewish feast of Shavuot. It's the same day God poured out his spirit, voicing salvation through the Gentiles, and guess what? Tongues of fire rested on each man. Fire, thunder, voice of God. God spoke. God had spoken. God still speaks today. God still speaks today. Do you hear him? Well, I don't hear him. I don't hear his voice. How many times have we been over this? How many times will I be asked, how do I hear God? Can you hear God? You tell me that you've heard God. I, I don't hear God. Listen very carefully to me on this. Those Gentiles in Egypt who feared his word, who set their hearts to his word were spared from the storm. You could say they heard the voice of God. They believed. They had faith in what they heard that it was from God. They heard, they listened 
to the word. More on this in just a moment. This brings us back to Pharaoh. Look at verse 27 back in Exodus chapter nine. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and he said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. And I'm reading it that way on purpose. Make supplication to the Lord for there's been enough of God's thunder, his colette, in this case, voices, and hail, and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses, verse 29, said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Listen to this, verse 30, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. What's Moses saying? Well, he's enlightening us that Pharaoh's confession was once again a farce. I've sinned. This was confession without repentance. Understand that you can say, yeah, my bad. Yeah, yeah, I done wrong. Sorry, not sorry. You can speak the words. You can make the confession. You can act as though you own it, but if there is no internal repentance, if there's no real turning to God, it's a farce. And so even though Pharaoh says, I sinned, yeah, well, I'll come back to this on Wednesday night because there are eight different instances where someone confesses sin in the Bible. Interesting, we'll look at that and think about the comparison. But Pharaoh here is just saying, yeah, I did wrong, just make it stop. Just make the thunder stop and the hail go away. Verse 31. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripen late. What is this little agricultural aside doing here? Aside from maybe just a little point of interest, it does two things for us. Number one, it gives us the time of year that this was all taking place. We can actually get, very, we can get within the month of the year that the hailstorm hit Egypt. See, flax in Egypt is always harvested or was always harvested late January. Barley was harvested in February. And we're told here that the, uh, where is the verse? The flax and the barley were ruined. The barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. So it was all there ready to be harvested, about to be harvested. We're talking about the January timeframe. Wheat and spelt weren't harvested till late spring. So again, this is probably January. But more important than that, the insertion of this little agricultural verse or these two verses tells us something foreboding. And that is there will still be crops, wheat and spelt, for the coming locusts to devour. All the crops are not wiped out in Egypt, just those that were ready at the time. Within a couple of months, the wheat and spelt is up and here come the plague of locusts. Verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. Okay, so there you go. The plague of hail, the hailstorm from heaven, the thunderous voice of God as it were, the lightning flashing. What does this have to do with the heart? It hit me in studying through and thinking this through over the last couple of weeks that the hard, cold truth of this story is that the hail and the heart are the same. The hail and the heart. Look at verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Back in Exodus chapter six and seven, I shared something with you I wanna share again and I want you to hone in on this now. Pharaoh's heart is hardened 12 times in this story. From beginning to end, chapter seven all the way up to chapter 14, we're gonna see Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But note this, if you don't know this already, the first six times, it's either Pharaoh intentionally hardening his heart or it's his heart naturally hardening on its own. 
The Bible doesn't say that the Lord hardened his heart until the seventh time. Now, the Lord warned he was going to harden his heart, told Moses ahead of time, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But the first six times we read about it, it was all on Pharaoh. It's not until the seventh time that the Lord actually hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that's chapter 9, verse 12. Then the eighth time, which is right here in the verses before us, verses 34 and 35 of chapter 9, the eighth time, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. And then finally, after this, God will harden Pharaoh's heart the ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th time. All this time, I want you to think, think about what's going on here. God has been speaking to Pharaoh's heart. God has been dealing with Pharaoh's heart. And his dealings are getting louder and louder and louder until he speaks in the hailstorm with a booming thunder. Because Psalm 7 verse 9 tells us, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. This is the subtext to all the plagues, the very personal subtext. God hardened Pharaoh's heart the seventh time, reinforcing the Egyptian's own hardness himself. And then he gives him another chance to repent until this eighth time where Pharaoh hardens his heart again, finally arriving at what we've called the point of no repentance. That's where Pharaoh is now. He has had opportunity after opportunity plague after plague, going from mild to worse to worse to worse until finally his heart becomes so hard, the Lord recognizes this will not change. He's hardened for good. Turn back to chapter nine, verse 13 for a moment. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, Stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For from this time, I will send all my plagues on you. But literally, and maybe your translation says this, on you is el lib in Hebrew, meaning upon your heart. Listen again. For this time, I will send all my plagues upon your heart. The King James translation is correct here. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Get this. See, the the plagues that were poured out, all 10 of the plagues were poured out first and foremost for divine identity, to declare that the Lord is God. Secondly, they're poured out for national deliverance. That is the deliverance of the people of Israel. But this is remarkable to me. Each one of these plagues also personally targeted the singular heart of Pharaoh himself. God's dealing with the individual here. Of all the people in the world, he's dealing with Pharaoh in the same way that he deals with you that he deals with me. He's going after this hard-hearted man. Why? To crack it open if it's possible. If there be any hope to crack that heart. Now listen, Modier says a scientist's account of a hailstorm may run something like this. As moist air rises and freezes, ice globules form and increase in size as more water vapor freezes around them and they become too heavy to be sustained by upward air currents and so they fall down as a hailstorm. And so again, I tell you, the hard, cold hail is a stunning picture of the process of a hardening heart that we've been seeing all along here with Pharaoh. What happens in the hail is a picture for everything that's been going on internally in this man. Why? Because the heart deeply matters to God. The heart matters most to God. Your heart, my heart matters to him. It speaks the heart of, again, the the eternal, internal identity of a person, my true, savable self. So God's going after the heart. The flesh gets old. The flesh will die 
The soul is gonna go one way or the other, but it's the spirit of a man, a spirit of a woman that God reaches for, that God desires to save. And I want you to see this, the pattern of Pharaoh's heart and God's voice reveals to us the chilling process or progress actually of sin on the heart. If you look again at verse 34 of chapter nine, it says that Pharaoh sinned again, hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. That is, he made it unresponsive to God. He closed it off. Then verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That is, became strongly resistant. So he hardened his heart, and his heart was hardened. And then finally, verse one of chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So note this progress. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh's heart gets hardened. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart and that's the pattern. That's the pattern for you and for me. That's how sin works because every time a heart is hardened by decision, by choice, it gets a little harder than it was before. Every time I refuse to repent, more spiritual plaque builds up and crystallizes on the heart to the point, ultimately, of no repentance. God will only harden a heart when that heart reaches a point that it will no longer change. And by the way, I'm so thankful for this. That's something God alone can discern. I don't discern that. I don't judge that on other people. I don't say that guy will never change because he might. God has a way of changing any heart But what we're saying here, and this is so convicting to me personally, every choice we make will either form or confirm our moral and spiritual heart. Every choice we make is gonna do one of two things. It's either gonna soften our heart or it's gonna harden our heart. So many things that we do, so many choices we make, and we think, ah, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. If it's a choice against God, it is hardening the heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Every choice I make for the Lord is a softening agent for my heart, for my spirit. I'm either for the Lord or I'm against him, and that's why it is absolutely a satanic self-delusion to say, I can handle sin. I can deal with it. I I can listen to this band. I I can watch that show. Not a big deal. I I know it's bad. I know it's wrong, but it's not affecting me. Wrong. It is affecting you. It is affecting me. It is either softening our hearts or it is hardening our our hearts. It is not static. It's dynamic. Our choices are dynamic. We say, I can do it one more time without risking a habit. Can you? It doesn't affect me. I can give it up anytime I want. Wrong wrong. The nature is being formed. The heart is either being softened or it's being hardened like freezing water vapor coalescing upon hailstones. Our sin choices only increase the hardness of the heart. And we have been so fooled in this by the casual nature of Christianity in our day. The no big deal attitude that we can imbibe on our culture, that we can partake of this stuff and it it doesn't affect me, is a lie. It's not true. You ever seen a hailstone? I mean, up close. They're not these smooth, round, little styrofoam balls. You know, they're bumpy and they're jagged and they're sharp because water is collecting in globules again and and attaching itself to the hail itself and and in the hailstorm. And if sin has such 
a hardening impact on our lives. How terrifying is that? Now, before we go too negative here, what do you do? I mean, if my involvement, even in watching a show, let's say I'm watching a show and, and there's a lot of language in it. Stuff's going into my head. Ah, it's not gonna bother me. It is getting in. I'm watching sex take place on the screen. It is getting in. It is impacting. It is hardening the heart. You might not feel it. Might not think so. But it's taking place. And in a world that just speaking honestly is as sinful as the world in which we live, that's very disconcerting. How do I avoid that? How do I keep my heart from getting hard? What can I do? Listen, there is only one thing that I know of that can soften a coagulated, calcified, fossilized heart, and that's the voice of God. The voice of God. From day one, it's his voice that has spoken into our hearts. It's his voice that speaks to us. Now again, we're back to that issue, but I don't hear God. You do if you're listening. How? I have talked to so many people who have said, I've never heard God, and yet their entire lives reflect the opposite. Of course you've heard God. If you pray, if you trust him, if you sing songs of praise to him, if you open your Bible with expectation, you hear God. He doesn't always speak in the booming coal, the thunder. Sometimes he's just a very soft whisper to my heart. Sometimes he just impresses upon my spirit his truth. He's speaking either way, whether in a whisper or in a thunder. And if you have trouble, if you're one of those saying, man, I, I, I wanna hear God better than I hear God, let me say to you again, read your Bible, pray, and repeat. Like a shampoo bottle, lather, rinse, repeat, Read your Bible, pray, repeat. Read your Bible, pray, repeat. It's so simple, but if you wanna be in tune with the voice of God, that's it. You read your Bible. You open up your heart to him in prayer, and you do the process again and again and again. And the more you're in the word, the more you're attuned to the way he speaks. The more you're in prayer, the more available you are to listen and to hear when he speaks. And even more specifically than all that, if you have trouble hearing from God, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. God speaks. If God didn't speak, our hearts would be hopelessly hard. It is the voice of God that provides the miraculous healing and softening that our hearts desperately need. The Lord speaks in a groan from Calvary. He speaks as a friend in comfort, as a father for strength. And yes, he will even thunder against our hardness when our ears get stopped up by rebellion. The tragedy is at that point, the heart is pretty hard. But in every case, it's his word that is the key. It's his word that we need. And Jesus, Jesus put it this way. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Picking up in verse three, and just get there quick as you can. Listen to this. Matthew 13 verse three tells us that Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up, and others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, but other seeds fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. 
And in one simple agricultural parable, Jesus lays out the four patches of soil, all allusions to the heart and its receptivity to the word, the seed, which comes from the sower, which comes from the Lord himself. Our receptivity to the word or lack thereof. Down in verse 18, Jesus explains. He says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the seed, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The heart is the soil. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It's interesting, verse 22. He doesn't say that the word is completely destroyed or the seed doesn't grow up. It just gets choked. It doesn't bear fruit the way it's supposed to. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. That is, he hears and he acts on the word by faith. And he bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You know what? It doesn't matter if you bring forth a hundredfold or 30. The idea is that you bring forth. Some are gonna hear the word of God, act on it, and, and be immeasurable. The Billy Grahams of the world are gonna have amazing impact in the life that they live and bear fruit all over the place. Others are just gonna bear a little fruit on North Whidbey Island. Either way, the bearing is the issue, not the amount. You hear the word, you act on the word, and let the Spirit bear fruit in your life and fruit in the lives of others around you. Why? Because you hear the word. You receive the word into the heart, from the plagues to the parables. It's as clear as the blue sky that God desires your heart, all of your heart. Now, I won't go into it right now, but what's fascinating about the parable of the soils and the seed and the sower is that it could all be the same heart. There are times where my heart has rocky patches and thorny patches and, and roadside patches and some soft patches. Depending on the attitude of the day, I might have one of any of the soils going on. Jesus is calling for good soil to overtake the entire heart that we would hear the word as it comes in. And that seed, man, that softens the soil, strengthens the soil, cultivates the soil, and brings fruit from the heart of the listener. God wants your heart. Tell you what, if God wanted Pharaoh's heart, and he did, God wants your heart. He wants all of it. And the proof is in the heart of Jesus himself, John 1:14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glorious of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth he wants your heart he came to get it not that it would be hard like hail but it would be soft by his power how's your heart this morning it's a question that I come back to every now and then, especially when my heart feels hard, when I feel a little pain, when there's scar tissue going on. How's your heart? I make an assumption that if you're listening, if you're tuned in this morning, you're seeking softer soil. You may have had a bad week. You may have had a very sinful time. You may have taken in some hardening Maybe some crystallization's happening, but you're here. You're tuned in. You got a Bible open. You're listening. Why? Because you want a soft heart. Me too. That's, that's why we open the word together, to hear him and to be softened by him. So obviously, if you're here, you're seeking after softer soil, but don't listen to me 
Listen to him. Hear the word and the voice of God. And especially as we get to verse three, one more verse this morning, Exodus 10, verse three, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. How long, God says to Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself? How long are you gonna continue this? How long is this gonna go on? Over and over. And we could hear this same word this morning. If you're in rebellion, if you're angry, if you are frustrated with the Lord, if you are unhappy about where we are even right now in this season and you're striving with God over the whole thing. See, I I realized that several weeks ago. No one's striving with me here. I'm not the issue. But if you're striving, your striving is with him. And if you're in that place this morning, the Lord would say to you, as he has said to me personally recently, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? He's speaking to the heart. Talking the heart of Pharaoh, but speaking to the heart of man and woman this morning, how long will you refuse to let his word into the heart? I wanna end with a passage where we began. Please turn back over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, go there in your Bible. I will wait for you because I want you to read this with me and to hear this clearly. Ephesians chapter four in the New Testament. I will go ahead and read what we read earlier and then we're gonna continue on from there. Ephesians 4, 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness, verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way, verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, so that you be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Non-believer, if you're tuned in this morning, listen to me, give your heart to Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus and be saved. Doesn't matter if it's hard. Doesn't matter if it's cold. Doesn't matter if it's frozen like hail this morning. Give your heart to Jesus. Turn to him, repent, and you will be saved. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart. If your heart is old and hard and shriveled and hail-like, I'll give you a new one. And I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh indicating soft and beating and pumping and filled with the spirit of God. Non-believer, listen, you can still choose Christ. And hey, if you can choose him today, guess what? He can still soften your heart. If you can choose him, he can soften your heart. If you can say yes to Jesus, it's all you gotta do. No matter how bad off your heart may seem, you say yes to him, you turn to him, confess and repent, and he can soften your cold heart. And believers, brothers and sisters in faith, give your heart to Jesus again today. Give your heart to him. Be sanctified. If your heart has been bruised or wounded or scarred, he is the healer of hearts. It's what he does. Give your heart to Jesus that it might be softened again and strengthened and assured. Give your heart to Jesus before the hail comes down. Let's pray together.
I'm gonna pray to you, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, please listen. Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of Jesus' inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. Father, this is our prayer this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts. Enlighten us. Father, cause the hail to melt away. Soften the hardness. Draw us near to you where there is peace and comfort and joy. Oh, Lord, heal the heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 